Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi Anchang, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingers is joined, as always, by Christopher Joy. I'm also a Portfolio Manager at Coolabar Capital Investments, which is our wholesale brand. Uh, some of you might know the retail brand, which is Smarter Money Investments. So today's episode is a special one. We'll focus on quantitative easing, otherwise known as QE, and we will discuss what's happening to housing, when the RBA will next cut rates, how much banks will actually pass through, how we're thinking about trading QE, and much more. So Chris, let's start with the markets update. Yeah, Ying is before I get into the markets, I just want to say a congratulations. A big congratulations, in fact, to one of our clients, the Australian Catholic Super Retirement Fund. They've recently been ranked by Super Ratings as the number one super fund in Australia in the diversified fixed interest category over the last one month, one quarter, one year, and now three years over the period to May 2019. Now, Coolabo runs uh, its active composite bond strategy for Catholic Super, and that's returned 13% pre-fees in the 12 months to the 21st of June. And it was ranked number one in Mercer's Australian Fixed Income Active Survey for the April quarter. I should stress here, this is an institutional product. There are no public offer retail versions of this product. Uh, so therefore, it's not available to mums and dads. The fees are confidential, uh, and so therefore, we can only talk in pre-fee returns terms. Catholic Super's CIO, Michael Block, and his fixed income manager, John Focus, are true innovators and pioneers in our industry, with Blocking in particular having identified and seeded a number of now market-leading asset managers. And I think they're a great case study of how smaller super funds can deliver outstanding results for their members through nimble and creative partnerships with world-class investors. And it is funny how uh, fund manager size, you often hear, is regarded as a big negative uh, for performance by consultants, researchers, uh, and investors. And yet regulators and the industry are actually actively encouraging super funds to merge into mega behemoths. I guess apparently what is bad for funds is not so bad for superannuation trustees. But now let's turn to the markets. Yeah, and I think Ying Yi will end up talking a lot about these intensifying search for yield dynamics in this episode, this special QE episode of the podcast. I actually, um, it's remiss of me not to also thank the listeners. Guys, um, we've had over a thousand downloads of the last episode alone. I think we ranked in the top three podcasts uh, on the uh, Apple iTunes uh, charts uh, within the Aussie Investments category. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate the opportunity to engage with you. And this is a, an important medium where we can try and communicate our best ideas. Over the month of June, we've seen that search for yield bid grow and grow. And that's translated into quite strong returns for any assets paying spreads above the cash rate. So, for example, we've seen the Osbond floating rate node index. Uh, it's returned 0.20% or 20 basis points over the first 25 days of June. In the higher volatility or high risk sectors, so, for example, the hybrid market, 
And again, we'll come back to this, but we've seen pretty spectacular performance. So the ASX hybrid market is up over 103 basis points in the first 25 days of June, and that's before franking. And then, of course, it seems like duration just you know continues to perform very very strongly it's been absolutely unremitting the returns that have been generated from fixed rate as opposed to floating rate bonds as yields long-term yields continue to slide so we've seen the fixed rate osbond composite bond index surge 122 basis points in june as the prospect of more rba rate cuts uh, is priced in. That's just in the first 25 days uh, in that active composite bond strategy uh, that we run that I mentioned earlier. We're comfortably exceeding that benchmark performance uh, and that portfolio is up 147 basis points in the first 25 days of June. Once again, I'd stress that's uh, an in-store only product and that is pre-fees uh, because we can't quote the post-fee returns. Chris, the housing market seems to be a moving feast right now, and you're our key internal analyst covering this topic. Can you try and unravel what many would say is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma? (laughs) Ingers, that's quite a tongue twister. Um, Yeah, sure. Well, house prices are starting to rise again in some areas. I can report that for listeners. We see Melbourne home values up 0.1% in June. And that's actually the first capital gain Melbourne Bricks and Mortar has recorded since way back in November 2017. According to CoreLogic, Sydney homes have also experienced their best monthly result since uh, July 2017. Now at this point, uh, in the first 26 days of June, we have Sydney dwelling values basically flat. They're actually off slightly at negative 0.1%. The overall five capital city index is similarly signaling that the great Aussie housing correction is finally coming to an end. Um, This is the biggest drawdown that we've seen in the data in about 40 years. Folks might remember that in April 2017, we said the boom was over, prices at that time were still rising, and that peak to trough, national prices would fall 10%. That's almost exactly what we got. And the cessation of the uh, correction also confirms our April 2019 forecast that the housing downturn would end if the RBA cut rates, which it obviously did in June, and we maintain our May projection that national house prices are going to climb by a fairly sturdy 5 to 10% over the 12 months following the second RBA rate cut. Now, Chris, on that note, while the market's currently pricing a circus 72% probability that the cash rate's lowered a second time in succession to just 1% at the next RBA board meeting in July, a key question is what the banks will actually pass through. The big four in particular face tremendous pressures on their net interest margins and returns on equity via a broad front of headwinds, including, you know, the inability to cut deposit rates below zero, a permanent increase in their regulatory and compliance costs, ongoing customer remediation payments, opportunistic class action litigation, 
a huge hike in the equity capital they're required to hold in their New Zealand subsidiaries, a new levy on their New Zealand deposits, intense competition from Chinese, Japanese and European banks in business lending and from lightly regulated non-banks in residential finance. And finally, the spectre of APRA, uh, eventually introducing a total loss-absorbing capacity, otherwise known as TLAC, regime that could materially raise their funding costs. Then, of course, they have to continue to pay the government's big bank tax levy of 0.06% annually on the value of their wholesale liabilities. Yeah, Yingers, back in 2015, we argued that the steady-state return on equity for the major banks should decline from their 16 to 18% levels at that juncture to around 10 to 12%, which is about where they've landed today, which is obviously much closer to their theoretical cost of equity. If it was difficult to make the economic case for the banks to pass through more than 15 basis points of the RBA's first 25 basis point cut in June, I think one is going to be hard-pressed to imagine that they're going to pass through, I'd say, much more than 10 to 15 basis points in July. In fact, you could actually see a bit of a protest vote uh, and you may get sub-10 basis point pass-through. And if that's what happens, the RBA best case will have only secured about two-thirds of the lending rate reductions it would normally expect from a brace of standard rate cuts. And it can hardly give the central bank confidence uh, that monetary policy will stimulate the economy to the new full employment target the RBA recently announced, which is a jobless rate of less than 4.5% compared to the 5.2% rate today. And we'll come back to this point because it's profoundly important. Now, that immediately introduces the potentially pressing need for a third cut, which may be why financial markets are pricing in a third third full rate cut by the end of this year. Uh, The problem, of course, is that the RBA will get even less pass-through in the third cut, perhaps at most 5 to 10 basis points. And then finally, there's the complication of the likelihood of multiple rate cuts from the US Federal Reserve this year, which will put upward pressure on the Aussie dollar uh, and work to undermine the RBA's monetary stimulus. Uh, Remembering that uh, the RBA had thought that Aussie dollar depreciation would be a key transmission mechanism through which its current cuts would work. And this presumably explains why the RBA governor, Phil Lowe, is suddenly talking about the limits of monetary policy and his desire to see the government's fiscal policy provide more economic support. The problem with this logic is that Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg were elected on the basis they would deliver a string of surpluses, and the only thing that's likely to stop them doing this is the threat of a full-blown recession. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Yingers. And when you actually think through this decision-making tree, all roads seem to irresistibly, inevitably, ineluctably lead to the RBA sensibly expanding its monetary policy toolkit to target a wider range of interest rates than just the conventional overnight cash rate. Now, this should include longer-term risk-free rates and the spreads over these benchmarks that determine bank funding costs and hence 
the practical savings and loan rates that banks set for their depositors and borrowers. If the RBA wants to, it could quite easily link its wider interest rate targeting program to changes in both bank funding costs and the rates they charge customers. Whether we really need RBA rate cuts is, I must stress, a very, very different question. What we know is that the RBA has made an extremely vocal case that driving the economy towards full employment will deliver, in its view, uh, the community large welfare gains. Of course, one could easily counter that these jobs will be in businesses experiencing artificially high rates of growth, powered by unsustainably cheap money. Indeed, many of these businesses might not exist in a normalised interest rate world, whatever or wherever that true long-term cost of capital uh, lies. In the meantime, however, we all need to frankly focus on making money and working with the RBA's calculus. So Chris, a core objective of the RBA's rate cuts is to force folks out of cash deposits into higher risk investments, which appears to be working on the evidence available thus far. And while investors may be worried about superficially low interest rates, if yields and credit spreads keep compressing, as they do now, total returns could be very large indeed, don't you think? Yeah, I think you're bang on, Yingers. Over the last year, if you consider a portfolio of 6.6 year duration, AAA rated Aussie government bonds that on average yielded only 2.1%, nevertheless delivered a stunning total return of 11.4%. I mean, that's an equity-like outcome. And that's because the expected return from these bonds has collapsed from 2.4% a year ago to just 1.2% today. The price of the bond has therefore jumped to reflect the fact investors are much happier uh, or are now happy to accept uh, much lower yields. I think the key point is, Ying, is that one can actually capture very large outsized returns from ostensibly very, very low yielding investments if, crucially, the required yield drops sharply, as we saw with Aussie govies. The trick, of course, is to find those investments that still appear cheap in a world where most asset classes look heinously expensive. So one example that we've discussed a fair bit on the podcast has been the hybrid market, uh, which was getting worked around pretty heavily pre-election, but post-election has done amazingly well. So we've seen the ASX hybrid market experience a huge rally following uh, ScoMo's victory and a market cap weighted index of Aussie bank hybrids has now returned a pretty staggering 8.8% including franking over the year to uh, circa 19 June. In the last month alone, we've seen ASX bank hybrids uh, return 2.6% as the risk premium or credit spread demanded by investors on a typical, say, five-year major bank hybrid has crunched in from 3.56% above the quarterly bank bill rate, or BBSW, to just 2.95% above bank bills. 
Uh, so that's circa 60 basis points of spread compression since the 18th of May. Um, I note that the bank bill swap rate is currently 1.26%, so you kind of need to add those two numbers together, the spread and the bank bill rate, to figure out you know, your expected running yield. Yes, Chris, and there was much chatter around the punter who bet $1 million on Labor to win the federal election. We at Coolabar shifted more than $100 million into fully franked hybrids just before the poll on the assumption that ScoMo would win, or if he did not, that Labor would slip over the line and face a Senate staunchly opposed to their franking proposal. So over the last year, double B plus rated major bank hybrids have also significantly outperformed the wave of high yield listed investment trusts, otherwise known as LITs, that have raised billions of dollars through paying advisors conflicted sales commissions of up to 2.75% to spruik these products to punters. And many were sold to mums and dads on the basis of a scare campaign around franking credits on income-rich equities and hybrids, which has proven to be fallacious. Arguably, one of the worst trades of 2018 was dumping hybrids on the presumption that these franking credits would be lost and moving into high-risk instruments issued by companies most investors have never heard of. The shockingly sad story of Evans & Partners' US Masters Residential Property Fund, which trades on the ASX as URF, is trading more than 50% below its net tangible assets, otherwise known as NTA. And it highlights the risk of LITs that invest in illiquid assets. When these investments perform poorly, punters rush for the exits and are forced to accept prices that are massively below the LIT's NTA, dramatically amplifying losses. And this has happened time and time again with equity fund manager L1's enormous $1.35 billion listed investment company, which is trading at $1.39 compared to its 2018 issue price of $2. Um, So it's 20% below its NTA. This is yet another illustration of what can go wrong. I'd agree with that, Yingers, and I think it always pays to really carefully interrogate the downside risks when you are being sold financial products or investments by folks who are receiving conflicted sales commissions. But I think turning back to the macro picture, a key question for me now is how much tighter can credit spreads actually go? Now, the global credit market is actually akin to two quite different asset classes corporate bonds and those bonds issued by so-called financials, which mainly encompass banks and insurers. I often hear the comment that credit spreads look tight, and this is actually both right and wrong. If you compare the credit spreads on bonds issued by non-financial corporates, generally known as corporate bonds, it is actually true that they look terribly expensive, irrespective of whether these are very low risk double A rated corporate bonds, lower risk triple B rated corporate bonds, or the higher risk double B rated or sub-investment grade bonds, all their credit spreads today are quite remarkably yingers back in line with the ultra tight levels that we last saw before the GFC in 2007. And this is despite the fact that corporates have generally been increasing their leverage or their balance sheet risk, uh, which would normally demand higher, not lower spreads. Now, what's fascinating for us is the exact opposite finding applies 
when you then turn to look at the bonds issued um, particularly by banks it doesn't matter where you look across bank capital structures credit spreads are literally multiples of their pre-crisis levels so you know if we take the major a typical major bank their five-year hybrid spreads are about 2.4 times wider than their 2007 marks if you move up the capital structure into tier two subordinated bonds spreads are 5.6 times wider than their 2007 marks most astonishingly i think uh, the major bank's safest double a minus rated senior bonds are paying credit spreads that are literally 10.1 times larger than what they have to pay what they had to pay back in 2007. And this is even more surprising when you consider that banks have been radically deleveraging their balance sheets since 2007 and generally de-risking their business models. More specifically, the major banks have halved their risk-weighted leverage with their tier one equity capital ratios jumping from just 6.8% in 2007 to 12.7% today. Now, it's this increase in the bank's credit spreads which is one of the reasons why they have struggled to pass on the RBA's first rate cut in June. Governor Phil Lowe recently claimed that the increase in bank funding costs in 2018 had fully reversed out. Now, Phil, while that is correct in relation to their short-term three-month cost of borrowing as represented by the bank bill swap rate, I'm afraid, mate, it is uh, totally wrong in respect of the all-important credit spreads on their bonds that make up as much as 30% of all their funding. So you know, to give you some uh, hard uh, examples, in January 2018, ANZ issued a five-year senior bond at a cost of just 77 basis points above the bank bill swap rate. This month, NAB was forced, by way of contrast, to pay 92 basis points above the bank bill swap rate for exactly the same funding. That is, NAB had to pay 15 basis points more. So, you know, unfortunately, message to the RBA, there has been no reversal or no full reversal in those 2018 uh, spread increases. There's been partial reversal, but spreads are still much wider than they were back in 2018. Another example is that midway la- through last year, Westpac issued a tier two bond at a cost of 180 basis points above bank bills, which actually looked pretty attractive at the time. Um, yet in May this year, poor old NAB had to once again pay 215 basis points above bank bills for an identical security. That is 35 basis points more than Westpac paid in um, mid-2018. So Chris, doesn't that mean that as we get closer to the terminal cash rate, the RBA will have no choice but to try to maximise the bank's pass-through by reducing the cost of borrowing for lenders across all their core funding channels, which means both BBSW and bank credit spreads. And of course, that can be done via extending cheap term lending to banks via repurchase agreements, and then eventually through buying government and bank bonds. In Lowe's defence, he was smart not to explicitly rule out quantitative easing in the Q&A following a speech he gave in June, while stressing that his central scenario is a much rosier one that almost certainly assumes better pass-through than what you have outlined earlier. Interestingly, he could materially reduce funding costs and enhance pass-through simply by rolling out some solid jawboning on QE, as his peers overseas have done, to immense effect. 
jawboning markets is actually much more effective than jawboning consumers who tend to be far less attentive to Martin Place's murmurings. Yeah, I think that's a crucial, profound point, Yingers. And I'm actually really surprised the RBA hasn't had the acuity to recognise that jawboning on QE would do a huge amount of heavy lifting for them on pass-through by immediately translating into tighter funding costs that they could point to uh, and then insist that the banks did their bidding. Nonetheless, I reckon a bit of a fissure is emerging between, on the one hand, the bankers who are worried about, understandably, increasing regulatory interference and the costs associated with the RBA exercising influence over a greater range of their interest rates than its overnight target cash rate. And on the other hand, the RBA that has a legislated uh, obligation to reduce the jobless rate to what the RBA thinks is its new full employment level of less than 4.5%, um, which is not, I think, going to be possible with its scant remaining monetary policy ammunition. This month we saw CBA publish three separate research notes on what quantitative easing or QE in Australia might look like uh, and what it means for different asset classes. While we also saw Westpac's Bill Evans, who's been ahead of the curve on this topic, release his second missive on the subject following a trip to Europe. And then we had the RBA's top economic forecaster, the irrepressible Lucy Ellis, publish an important speech on the central bank's full employment objective which has big ramifications for this nascent QE debate that we're discussing today. So in her speech, Alice stressed that the RBA has three core policy goals. First, price stability, that is keeping inflation in the 2 to 3% target band over the medium term. Secondly, full employment. And finally, contributing to the economic prosperity and welfare of the people. Alice explained that the RBA's best new estimate of the jobless rate that would be equivalent to full employment is currently less than 4.5%, as we've discussed. What's interesting is that, based on its current trajectory, as the data was presented by the RBA, the full employment level could in fact be around 4.25% within a few years. And this is, you know, for the avoidance of doubt, the lowest possible jobless rate we can maintain without pushing core inflation above the RBA's target. There's a fancy term for it, which is the NIRU, or Non-Accelerating Inflation Rate of Unemployment. As um, The Economist Richard Holden argued in the AFR, this is a dramatic turnaround for Martin Place after years of telling us all that full employment equated to a jobless rate around 5%, and which is obviously cl- you know, close to its current 5.2% mark. So the RBA now believes there is substantial uh, spare capacity in the labour market, which it says is highlighted by the historically sluggish wages growth. Getting around 100,000 unemployed folks who should have jobs back to work is suddenly a crucial RBA priority. A complementary goal is, of course, lifting Australia's core 1.5% inflation rate back into the target band. 
And I think one of the problems that Phil Lowe now faces is he's missed his target 2 to 3% inflation band for the entirety of his circa three-year tenure. In fact, the RBA's core inflation rate has been below the target band for almost four years. Uh, he's now telling us that he's also missing his full employment target rate uh, of sub 4.5% by quite a significant margin. So there's a lot of work to be done. And Chris, I guess the problem is that both the RBA and the banks believe lenders are unlikely to pass on any rate cuts at all below an official cash rate of 05 to 0.75%. That means that although the RBA thinks monetary policy has much heavy lifting to do to get the jobless rate back below 4.5%, it only has two to three standard cuts left. Assuming circa 50% pass-through, the RBA can, in practice, only lower actual lending rates by, say, another 25 to 40 basis points, unless it broadens its policy toolkit to include a wider range of interest rates over which it does have prospective control. That's right, Yingers, and the central objective of monetary policy is to adjust the cost of capital or the interest rates paid on savings and loans across the economy. While the RBA can do this through changes to its theoretical cash rate, there are many other interest rate levers pertaining to longer term one, three, five and ten year savings and loans that the RBA can pull just as easily. Um, Here, I think it's important to recognise that privately, the RBA believes it has actually used QE in the past by expanding its current short-term lending operations to banks. We mentioned these before. Uh, They're carried out by so-called repurchase or repo arrangements, um, which are normally very, very short-term, to much longer terms of 12 months during the 2008 crisis. Just for definitional purposes, Uh, A repo is simply a secured form of lending where a bank posts collateral, typically a government bond or a bank bond, with the RBA and then it borrows against that collateral. The cost of this repo funding uh, during the GFC was miles below market interest rates for banks at the time and it provided them with liquidity they might not have been able to access uh, while also alleviating pressures on their funding costs and hence upward pressures on savings and loan rates that might otherwise have asserted themselves. Now this time around nobody is talking about a liquidity or funding crisis. In fact, I think that's a complete furphy. You know, QE this time around Ying is, is not about liquidity. It's obviously about the cost of funding uh, and reducing that cost of funding in order to facilitate the transmission mechanism through to lower savings and loan rates. CBA's research confirmed our original analysis, and I think we were one of the first groups, if not the first group, to publish research through my AFR column on the QE debate, uh, and specifically the prospect of QE arriving much more quickly than market participants had conceived of. And CBA confirmed that if the RBA were to extend its current monetary policy program, it would indeed likely involve longer-term lending operations via repo to further reduce bank funding costs, which the RBA could crucially insist passed on to borrowers via cheaper borrowing rates. And the British have, uh, during their QE program, done the same thing, linking changes in funding costs and the ability to borrow directly from, effectively, the state through to the consumer and business lending rates that people actually pay. CBA, like us, also highlighted that the RBA could engage in direct asset purchases 
of firstly government bonds to reduce the longer term risk-free rate that banks borrow against, in addition to purchases of other related securities, including senior bank bonds, which are also repurchase eligible, and perhaps asset-backed securities, which are again repo eligible, to reduce the credit spreads on these securities that banks pay over and above the risk-free rate or you know, the underlying benchmark funding rate, uh, which are a core driver of funding costs and therefore practical borrowing rates. And although there is excitement that the RBA might focus its asset purchases on residential mortgage-backed securities, otherwise known as RMBS, this would favour a very specific type of bank lending, i.e. housing, which is not desirable given record levels of household leverage. The RBA is presumably motivated to reduce the cost of all bank loans, including those offered to companies, small businesses and households, which can only be achieved by focusing on repo financing and or generic senior bank bonds. Aussie banks are also somewhat unusual globally because they have relatively low deposit funding and a relatively high reliance on sourcing capital via issuing senior debt. Some claim these measures should be reserved for a crisis, but it's really just about ensuring monetary policy continues to work effectively in an ultra-low interest rate world. Whether the RBA seeks to manipulate interest rates via its overnight cash rate, term repo lending and or bond purchases, all these actions are attempting to influence the cost of capital that banks pay when they want to borrow money to lend locally. While banks might fear the spectre of additional regulatory influence, the RBA has fundamentally different goals, which Ellis eloquently outlined. Getting 100,000 unemployed workers into jobs and hitting the RBA's inflation and full employment targets are much more important than ruffling a few banking feathers. And it would be smarter for the RBA to embrace a wider range of interest rate targets sooner rather than later to maximise the pass-through of its remaining cash rate cuts. I completely agree. Well put, Yingers. Um, <clears throat> having said that, you know the RBA can be monolithic. Uh, one of the things we've learned is that large, complex organisations that seem superficially, ostensibly, you know, sophisticated, are capable of very, very silly decisions. So it would seem that the logic is irresistible, but who knows what will ultimately transpire. The RBA can also be uh, notoriously intellectually stubborn and almost never admits it's wrong. So uh, we will watch this space very carefully. Uh, it will undeniably have profound ramifications for portfolios. And we're certainly thinking about our positioning in the context of QE, where, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, seeing really striking manifestations of this search for yield dynamic intensifying one good example recently was um, Barclays issuing a uh, senior bond that probably normally would have only attracted around $500 million to $1 billion worth of demand, and yet the book size was almost $4 billion um, during the book build process. I think they printed $800 million of this particular security. Barclays isn't a particularly well-rated bank. Uh, it's a bit of a pure Brexit play. Uh, the rating on the security was only triple B, but it performed brilliantly. There was massive spread compression. Uh, so that's a security that I think in the past Aussie investors 
uh, discriminating and conservative Aussie investors would have definitely avoided. Um, it's a technically bail security or a so-called total loss absorbing capacity security. But this time around, um, people couldn't get enough. If you have any feedback on the podcast, guys, please don't hesitate to email me directly at christopher.joy at coolabarcapital.com. Otherwise, once again, we really appreciate the fact that you guys listen. Um, The listening time and the durations have been overwhelming. And please listen very, very carefully to Ying Yi's important disclaimer. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.